I like the idea of fringe sports for sure. Disc golf, I don't think is necessarily my cup of tea, but I can tell you what <laughs> is and I'm all in on and it is pickleball. Pickleball, I wouldn't even call it a fringe sport anymore. It's the fastest growing sport in America. I'm all in on it in terms of loving to play it, being with friends, having fun. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, today's episode is a fun one. I get to bring on one of my really close friends, Charlie Gibbons. He is the CEO of Powder Heart. It's an innovative fitness experience. They have offline locations, an online experience, and they've been able to grow to multiple locations even during a pandemic. In this episode, he talks about how he was able to validate the idea before investing in real estate and actually getting a location, how he's been able to overcome the pandemic, and what he's thinking about with growth going forward. Also, Charlie's got an interesting background. He worked for the MBA in China. He worked with Bumble and helped them broker a deal with LA Clippers. So I get some half-baked startup ideas from him on what he would do if he was starting today. And I'm pretty impressed. We come up with some interesting ideas around the fastest growing sport in America and how he would approach monetizing it. But really hope you enjoy this episode with Charlie Gibbons. I have a guest today. It is one of my best friends I have known since... Sixth grade, I was lucky enough to go to middle school with him, with high school with him for a little bit. And we lived in New York together for a while, but he then left me and went to China. And it was a, a tough point in my life because he was the last of our single friends that lived in New York and I ended up having to become an adult. We had some good times there. He had a fun party trip with my wife that we don't need to talk about. But we're going to attempt to have a serious conversation today. I don't think Charlie and I have had a serious conversation that's gone over four minutes, so we'll see how it goes. So, Charlie, thanks for being here. Thanks for letting me sucker you into this. So, welcome. You bet, Jim. Thanks for having me, buddy. This is cool that you're doing this. So, I thought I'd start off with one personal question. Do you even remember how we met? I remember exactly how we met. It was sixth grade. We were outside on the basketball court outside at Westminster. And you were this new kid who had just, well, actually, you know what? It was a little bit before sixth grade. You were visiting the school to see if you wanted to go there. And we were outside of the basketball court. And you were supposedly this star basketball player. And I was a little concerned about losing my starting role in sixth grade. And then it turned out that you could jump so high, you could get net on a 10-foot goal. And that really bothered me and shook me to my core. But it ended up, yes, not only did you become our star basketball player, you did lead us to an eighth grade state championship. So I forgave you for it. We, we will absolutely go down that memory lane. But yeah, I think my vertical stop, that was my peak in sixth grade or fifth grade for sure. I remember that day visiting because I, I think I was wearing either like the new Charles Barkley shoes or the Penny Hardaways which got me street cred, but I'm surprised we became friends because I was wearing jean shorts, but it was the ones that were striped where it's like denim and then it's white, like a candy cane. Yes, you had quite the look and they were Penny Hardaway's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I think they're like two sizes too big, but they were the only size they had. No, that's awesome. Well, like it's so interesting. You have such an 
unique background because from an early age, I thought you were going to be Jerry Maguire and become a sports agent. And you actually did end up working for the NBA. You went to China. Were you there for two years? I don't even know how long you were there. Was it longer than that? Yeah, I was in China, mainly in China, two years, and I spent about six months in Hong Kong as well. So I had about around two years, six months experience in Asia. So you did NBA China. You then go work for Bumble. You help broker the deal with Bumble and the LA Clippers where they have the, the fancy Bumble patch on their jerseys that I also want to get into. But I actually want to start with your latest venture. Like I always knew you're entrepreneurial, knew you were going to do something. You launched something called Powder Heart. So first, can you even just explain to people what is Powder Heart and how did you even come up with this idea? Yeah. So I've always, well, I would say not always because you knew me in high school. I didn't let go of fitness and didn't really <laughs> care that much. But I would say maybe towards my junior year of college, I started getting into fitness, really enjoyed it. Then I started getting into group fitness when I lived in uh, New York, when it was really starting to uh, grow as a category of business. And always, and then I just, I would say maybe 10 years later, I kind of came up with the idea of creating an altitude inspired uh, fitness and culture concept. I spend about half my time in uh, Aspen, Colorado in the mountains. And every time I leave Aspen, I'm always in the best shape of my life, happiest, and wanted to somehow translate that into a democratized approach of group and studio fitness and wanted to launch it here in Dallas. So slowly uh, but surely came up with the idea. And my original idea is not even close to what it currently is now, as is every entrepreneurial idea. You start with something and then all of a sudden it morphs into something entirely different. So we have now opened up our first location here in Dallas, Texas, and it is a low impact interval training, but there is a um, high intensity aspect to it. I wanted to create the low impact format because of my experience with running and marathons and whatnot, it ended up taking a toll on my body. So I wanted to find something sustainable and hence came to the fruition of Powderheart. So we are open here in Dallas, opened up two weeks before the pandemic and then shut down right away. So that was fun, but it's actually been a work in progress for about two years now, as I started with the validation phase first, uh, before I actually took a lease out and did a proper four-wall retail-based business. So I think that's what's really smart is you have this idea, you think you're on to something. And I think a lot of people, I see them, and I think you and I both see them make the mistake, they think they have to go all in and sign the lease and launch the thing. But you did the opposite. You're like, let me actually validate this before I go all in. So I, I love thinking of startups from the framework of first idea, second traction, the third growth and scale. So you came up with the idea inspired from Aspen. Second, you need to validate it. We walk people through how you validate something that's as hard as a physical experience. Yes, for sure. And of course, everyone thinks whenever they come up with an idea, they are scared at first, but they think that their idea is the best idea ever. And just because you sit there and you dwell on it and you think about it constantly. And I, from the beginning of it, I was like, oh, this is going to work. I know it. I know it. And I, in all honesty, I had no idea what I was doing. I just thought for sure everyone's going to love it. Well, thank God my, my dad talked me off the ledge in terms of saying, hey, why don't you take a phased approach to it and start take that validation phase. And you can do that with IRL concepts like fitness, similar to uh, tech, where you start with obviously the idea, and then you move into 
an MVP, and then you move into product market fit, and then you move into the actual what becomes the actual product itself. And then that product itself, it's in a workable model, but it can also pivot and move into other aspects and other business avenues where I, Powderheart, we've got our four-wall unit economics down. We've got our model down in terms of operations. We've got the model down in terms of the product. So the product is flexible in the sense that we can, I'm not saying Powderheart is set in stone of what it is today. It can definitely become more and I intend on it becoming more. Other things are going to come up and we're going to try things that are going to continue to work and things that will not work. So that's the reality of any business, whether it's tech or like I said, IRL retail, like I'm doing. Yeah, I think being able to iterate on, obviously iterating on software is something they talk about, but when you involve a physical product, it sounds daunting, but you've pulled it off because you validated by not getting signing a lease. Did you partner with someone to get, to get a corner of their space? And how much did you have to pay for that? Because for me, that was really smart when I saw you doing that. Yeah. So I, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't want to jump into a big lease. So what I did is I took a, I saw an old laundromat for lease in kind of a weird part of East Dallas. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to set it up here. It's super cheap. I hung up some Christmas lights, painted the walls, got some equipment in and started testing the format and hiring some instructors and going through that process. And then set up a website, started gathering data from our users and customers. And eventually I had over 3000 people that had registered on our site and people were coming to take classes. So that was a validation metric there. And then I was able to then pinpoint based off their zip code where they were coming from. So they were coming from Uptown Dallas, Highland Park, Knox Henderson area. And I was like, okay, well, that's obviously where I have to go. But I still, although I did feel that I had product market fit and was ready to roll, I was still hesitant on the economics. I still wasn't dying to go do a 10-year personal guarantee on a lease. So I just got scrappy and found someone that had a distressed concept and their build out was pretty much there. So what I did is I just came in, I moved a wall, painted things, and I did my branding and activated that way. So it was a great way to be scrappy and use uh, your resources wisely and uh, not spend a million dollars on a build out. I would rather use that for working capital and continuing to prove the product. That's so smart because so many people think that their capital needs to go into the location and other things, but you're saving money there so you can invest in the right fitness instructors or the core product, the workout that you're developing. And really smart to get the distressed asset too, because a lot of people might not think to do that. Yeah. The distressed asset play is the way to go, and it continues to be my North Star, if you will. Obviously, after COVID, naturally, there's going to be some distressed assets out there in terms of leases, which is now why I'm moving into my second location in Fort Worth. Very similar story to my first location, and it just continues to be a way to grow the business in an economical way where if you were to open up an orange theory, you have a total capital outlay of a million bucks where I'm able to get up and running and operating with about one-tenth the cost. So when you're not backed by big private equity money and you're using your own money and or friends and family money, you have to be scrappy and you want to make every cent count. So this continues to be the way I'm going to operate. And I think it'll prove in the future to people that want to invest that 
their money is well invested with Powderheart when we do go down that road for a capital raise. The other smart thing that you mentioned is you're getting people to come to the studio, go through the experience. You're collecting data, but your data was based on geography, where they live. And you started to see everyone's in those three neighborhoods you mentioned. So it almost gives you the roadmap on where your location needs to be if you can find the right distressed asset, which is an awesome idea. It's a great data set that you can then take it. Okay, well, obviously I need to be in this area in Fort Worth. I need to be in this area of Denver. I need to be in this area of New York. So it all all spells it out for you. You're showing the good blueprint on how to test this out and get a location. How did you get the first people in the door? Because all I know is I heard you're doing this thing. Oh, that's cool. We'll see how it goes. And all of a sudden, social's blowing up. And I'm not in Dallas anymore. I used to live there, but I see everyone talking about Powderheart. I'm like, okay, how the heck did Charlie pull this off? I'm like, is he paying people? Is he getting influencers? Is it really that good and it's word of mouth? Is it a combination of everything? Can you talk through how you got the first people in and then how it started to spread? Right. In all honesty, it was just word of mouth and had some friends chat about it and did a few partnerships with some other local brands to get that footing. And again, some validation where it is a, partnerships is the cheapest way to gain a new customer base. But it was more in terms of, as most businesses, once you're trying to attract people at top of funnel by offering something free or whatever, and then you can work them through that funnel and uh, convert them into a member. So. That was the natural progression of offering a first week free or first class free, that kind of thing. At the end of the day, people, they like free stuff. It doesn't really matter how rich you are. People will take free stuff and they can get it. And being smart about how we capture that customer at that top of funnel was a big part of it, which was obviously you've done giving great advice to me on how to capture customers and work them down a uh, conversion funnel. Growth It was a huge part of that. The other cool thing was you really started to see that your product was something people loved because you had this great kind of, I guess not repeat purchase, but repeat attendance. So you could give up money for people to do the first workout for free, knowing that the experience is going to be so great that they're going to come back again and tell their friends. How did you kind of engineer that? Because people that don't know, it's like, oh, okay, Powder Heart sounds like another fitness experience. It is so different because you go there... You walk into the place, you don't feel like you're in a workout studio. You feel like you're almost, I don't know, in some high-end nightclub at some other place where you're transported. And then after the workout, your endorphins are pumping. And it's not like you're handing people Gatorades. You're handing out cold brew. You're handing out rosé. And you have this Amalfi Coast style of patio where people hang out, where people are like, wait, I'm here to work out, but I'm making all these friends and it becomes an extension of that. Kind of walk through as you're crafting this unique experience because there's so many options out there in fitness. What made you want to do something different and how did you come to that idea? Right. So I'm really big on creating a unique culture. I prefer the word culture over community. I think community is, you know, such a buzzword and we're called in. I think community can actually be not be inclusive. It can be exclusive. So with culture starts first and we want everyone to be a part of that culture. And as everyone knows, when you are in the mountains, there is an apri culture and it's where I've met a lot of my good friends today, some of my best friends. And When you're in a workout studio, you're already surrounded by like-minded individuals and you have one thing in common. So why not uh, create a touch point from a culture aspect where those like-minded individuals can 
get to know one another and hang out and enjoy a nitro cold brew or a kombucha or rosé or beer together. So it's been a great asset for us. It is something that people like to utilize and it is a differentiation factor to us. I'd like to say that our actual workout modality itself being a low impact interval training is different than say a um, Orange Theory or Berries or an F45. But this is also another element that really sets us apart from competition. That's awesome. So you validate the idea, you've got great traction, you signed a lease, people are starting to come in, and then the pandemic hits. And I don't think anybody's hit harder than gym memberships and gyms. So what's been the last year and a half, what's that been like? Because you've still come out of it, you're opening a second location, you've clearly weathered the storm. Well, what's that experience like? Because that's got to be deflating. Yes, it was very deflating because we were super excited. I put my heart and soul into putting up wallpapers, doing the painting, getting all the equipment, everything, and we're ready to roll. And we don't even really get a chance to do pre-sales or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, bam, two weeks later, we are hit with COVID. So we have to shut down, clearly. And I had a lease obligation. So I had to get scrappy in terms of how I worked with my landlord, who they happen to be great people and worked with us a little bit and had to get scrappy about how am I going to deal with my employees? Keeping, retaining employees in the fitness industry is very tough. So I made a commitment to them that I would continue to pay them throughout the entire time, which is difficult because like I said before, I don't have any partners on this. I do have a few small investors, but it's mainly me out there doing this. So it was, I just had to be scrappy and figure it out. But it also gave us time to work on different parts of the business that we probably wouldn't have gotten to until later on because I'm so busy doing check-in, cleaning, teaching, hiring, payroll, meeting vendors, all that stuff. So it really gave me a chance to focus on brand, focus on strategy, where typically when you're in the midst of it and you're up and running, you don't really have time to craft a strategy. Like everyone. You just tried to make the best of it and take get some uh, takeaway lessons from it. And I kept telling myself, if I can make it through this, everything else from here on out, whenever we have a snag in the business is going to feel like nothing. So in a lot of ways, I mean, I'm not grateful for COVID, but it did teach me a lot of unique skill sets. And without a doubt, the most thing it just taught me to be scrappy. Yeah. It's a good lesson learned, but it's so annoying. It's crap. Why do I have to go through that literally before you launch the studio? But well done. And it's not like I have experience in the fitness industry. This is a completely new industry to me. It's literally, I have, the only experience I have with fitness industry was that I've been to a Barry's class. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's okay, great. Have you ever operated one? And so not only do I have to come up with the brand, the marketing and learn to operate and all that stuff. And then you're waking up at 5 a.m. and doing check-in. And if an instructor doesn't show up, you got to teach the class. So literally, I'd I had no clue what I'm doing, what I was doing. I still don't think I have 100% hold on it. I'm probably 50% of the way there, but that's what makes entrepreneurship fun though. Yeah. I mean, you can read all you want and strategize, but you've got to just do it to actually get any meaningful learnings. I totally agree. So yeah, you'll never know unless you actually do it. Yeah. So your dad, I've been fortunate to know your dad for a long time and he's one of the most 
creative people I've ever been surrounded by. And he's done so many interesting things, but obviously like in Dallas specifically, like what in Texas specifically, what he's done with Hotel Zaza was super innovative, bringing that to Uptown It's as it's just up and coming and just became a behemoth. What are things just, whether it's direct advice from him or just observing what he's done that you've taken note on that you've used to drive your own career? Yeah. So I would say number one is creating value. And what I mean by that, when I try to explain this to my employees, when you get a job function or a role and responsibility, you're like, oh, this is all I have to do are these 10 things and I'm not doing anything else. Well, creating value means, okay, well, if you got to take out the trash, you got to take out the trash too. If you got to clean, you got to clean too. So that's one thing my dad is, he didn't just say, oh, I'm going to own these hotels and build them. He, you know, would become a housekeeper for a week and learn um, that part of the business and would go above and beyond what any just owner would have to do. And that's how you create value. It also shows shows your employees that I'm not going to have you do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And when I set out to do Powder Heart, I wasn't intending on one. I wasn't even intending on uh, being an instructor or a uh, teacher. And then eventually I was like, well, I got it. I, I can't have these people get on a mic and talk about the brand if I won't do it. So I taught myself and I love teaching classes now. And I didn't want to clean constantly, but you know what? You got to do it. So I would say that is definitely his biggest skill set is creating value and really stretching that value in the sense that he can build something for X amount, but it looks like it's worth X amount. So it's a uh, great skill set to have, and he preached to me budget, but he always delivers his developments under budget, which is huge, and that's something I'd really take to heart, which kind of goes back into that creating value element. Yeah, because those costs can add up if you don't have great attention to detail and you hit a downturn like a pandemic, it just pulls the rug out from under you. But to the idea of adding value, I totally see that, especially with the hotels, because Every little detail is thought of in a very customer-centric way where what you pay for, you get back tenfold because the experience is so nice. And I think that's like the second you walk into a powder heart, that comes through. It's like from when you walk into when you walk out, like every little detail was thought of, which is nice when your square footage isn't huge, so you don't have to do as many things maybe as at a hotel. But no, that's super interesting. Yes, detail is super important and because people really do recognize it. And if we have our members, we have unlimited our unlimited members, they get a free nitrous cold brew and all and if it's not set out after their class a certain way, little things like that drive me crazy. The attention to detail is super important because that is what is going to keep people coming back. Yeah, I can speak to that because when I was in Dallas, you and I were getting a drink and you were, you had a little bit of anxiety because someone wasn't changing the the filters for the cold brew or you have to have the tanks in there. I think you ran over to the studio to either double check or fix it. And I was like, okay, well done. Yeah, there's little things like that if you don't have the right CO2. So I want to hit a little bit on, you were able to work with Bumble as they're like riding this insane growth wave going to IPO, you're very close, obviously, with the CEO, Whitney. Talk to that experience and things you took away from that, whether it's just working with them in general, even that experience with the deal with the Clippers, because it was pretty insane to see the growth path that Bumble's been on over the past few years. Oh, man, working with Bumble was so much fun. They advising them 
in several different roles was really fun across partnerships. And then when they took a dive into sports, media, and entertainment, it is, I learned so much. That's another example of a lot of creative, ambitious, and scrappy people that don't necessarily know what they're doing, making something work and just not taking the word no and just being relentless and when with your idea. So Whitney obviously is an incredible CEO. She's taken that company into the absolute stratosphere and her ability as a marketer is she might be the best in the country in terms of marketing. But I learned so much from her and learned so much just from all the different employees there and all the different skill sets. But it was a really fun company to work with and watching them now go public is something pretty spectacular. Yeah. It's insane what they've done. It's pretty cool to see. Can you put even more details on what makes her such a good marketer? Because what I see is from a brand perspective, it's insane what she's done. And it seems like she's a great magnet for talent as far as getting the right people, which as you start a company, that's maybe the most important skill set is getting the right people in the right seats to go to that next level. But But any other kind of things you're absorbing as you were working there? Yeah. So in terms of her marketing, I'm say one of the best things she does is she stays, it's a mission-driven marketing, right? So she stays on that mission North Star of inclusivity, kindness, and doesn't really waver from it. And she practices what she preaches and then is able to use that mission to attract world-class. Because everyone knows that young people want to go work with, with a company that they believe in. They don't want to go work at some job that has a meaningless mission or is making tires or something like that. It is a mission-driven company, and she really knows how to capitalize on that mission across all marketing touch points, digital, whatever it might be. And she really can create campaigns around that mission, that three-month stints that are also driven with what's going on in terms of pop culture or news or whatever it might be, and embed Bumble in it in some way to be relevant with that topic or storyline, which is really tough to do. And she does it well. Yeah, it sounds so simple, but it's like really hard to stay true and keep that North Star. That's that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Staying on mission is but you see so many companies that have a mission and it's their mission for six months and they switch to something else and then all that. And then Bumble has not budged in terms of its mission. It's been day one, its goal of inclusivity and kindness. And it still is seven years later. What are we, seven years now? Six, seven years? Yeah. Yeah. And even just with it being like the woman makes the move first, it's because so many missions it just feel real phony. It's all oh, they're just doing that because doing it. But when it's authentic and from the start, then it's yeah, that much more impressive. Yes, Bumble, that's the best word to describe. Bumble, their mission and their marketing is authentic. Their authenticity is dead on. So I want to get into some half-baked startup ideas because you and I will always kind of bounce around some things. I even sent you an article last night and I was a little jealous or pissed because you already thought five steps ahead of me on it, but I'll tee it up. So I've been wanting you to buy an NBA franchise and give me a little piece of it for a while, but it seems like the values are going a little too high for one person to buy. So maybe it's like a sports scene, but instead I found a better idea where I read in the ringer that there's a disc golfer named Paul Macbeth who just signed a $10 million 
endorsement deal for throwing a Frisbee across a yard. And I'm like, okay, that's insane. You need to start the CAA, the sports agency for ESPN Ocho type of sports. And you actually have the back. I mean, I, well, to be a sports agent, you probably need maybe a legal background. But outside of that, we can get you a law degree. You have everything else. You've brokered the deal with Bumble and the Clippers. You've worked for the NBA. But I'm interested to get your thoughts in and around this idea. What are your ideas on it? Why aren't we starting a sports agency for disc golf tomorrow? But what do you think? Well, I like the idea of fringe sports for sure. Disc golf, I don't think is necessarily my cup of tea, but I can tell you what (laughs) is and I'm all in on and it is pickleball. Pickleball, I wouldn't even call it a fringe sport anymore. It's the fastest growing sport in America. I'm all in on it in terms of loving to play it being with friends, having fun, but I'm also, go back on your half-baked idea, I'm also all in on, almost all in on creating a um, company based around pickleball. I think there's um, a lot to be had there from apparel, from other subcategories such as youth academies. There's, you can create different tournament structures, all sorts of fun, different genres around it in terms of content. I really think that pickleball is the next sport that really is going to have a big chunk of the total addressable market. And the reason I think that is because how approachable it is. Really, anyone can play. I can play with my 70-year-old dad. I can play with my 12-year-old nephew. And we all can play it because it's not like regular tennis where you hit the ball, it goes into the net, and you got to really struggle to even get any type of rally going. So there is real short form return on it in terms of pleasure of making a point or being able to execute on a play. So I'm all in on pickleball. It's a short form tennis. And as we know, people, we only spend eight seconds on one piece of content. So for people to go play baseball and do all that, it's a, it's a tough ask. And where people want instant gratification, pickleball is definitely your growth sport. And I think it's here to stay. I really want to do this pickleball idea. So if anyone out there listening wants to do youth pickleball youth academies or a pickleball apparel line, please call me. Let's not give away our, our partnership deal just yet. So let's get into this because I wrote down some ideas for you. So first, you already said, but for people that don't know, pickleball is essentially short court tennis. But if you just go to YouTube, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put some highlights up there that are impossible not to watch when you get the rallies going. And the best part is usually the people in these rallies are people that don't necessarily look like the most athletic people. They might have a beer belly, but it's still amazing to watch. So anyone can play. So how do you monetize around this? So I have five ideas or four I'm going to pitch at you that you do around pickleball. So first, can you own a league around it? I don't know. There's the USA Pickleball. I literally don't even know enough to be dangerous. But how do you own the league? That might be a little too tough. The second thing would be, can you become the Nike of pickleball? And do you start a sports apparel brand around it? Unless Nike comes in and becomes a Nike of pickleball. The third is, could you get all the media rights to the content and become the ESPN of pickleball? Or maybe like the barstool sports of it? And then the other thing that you hit on was, you think of the amateur athletic union AAU for basketball growing up. How can you like own the like that youth organization around it so we scout out the talent 
and then we find I don't want to find necessarily the next well I guess we do want the next Kevin Durant but I want someone that's a little more polarizing like a Conor McGregor where you either love him or you hate him but the pickleballer will have a hundred million Instagram followers because then that's how you get the endorsement deal so you use the AAU pickleball circuit to find the talent you get rights to them and then you can monetize with endorsement deals down the road. So what do you think? Do, you, do we just do all of them or do you have to choose one? Well, doing all of them would definitely be a big task. And you mentioned a league. Anyone can go start a league. You and I can go create a basketball league tomorrow if we want it. That USA Pickleball is the governing body. And there are definitely just how FIBA is the governing body of basketball. There are different leagues within basketball. There's the China Basketball Association. There's the NBA. There's the Development League. There's the WNBA. There's the Euro League. So there's a lot of, anyone can go start a league if you want. And I think you will see different leagues start to pop up around pickleball. And there there already are. I mean, it could be youth leagues. It could be senior citizen leagues. It could be mixed, mixed gender leagues. It can be whatever you want it to be. But I do think leagues are definitely one of the easier way. Pickleball as pickleball apparel is a no-brainer. I could see my wife buying a cute pickleball glove and a skirt and a pickleball visor, even though it's probably the exact same as a tennis one, but it's probably branded for pickleball. So that is definitely intriguing and then content's king and there is some good content that comes out of pickleball i can tell you right now my brother-in-law and i were getting into it playing at my lake house the other day in pickleball and he came back and beat me and if you had a camera on it it would have got a bunch of likes because there was some real trash talking and family dynamics at play there so You've never been one to have a temper. I don't believe it at all when no, it comes to sports. No, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really keep my wits about me in my pickleball matches, let me tell you. They're even, like, even in the doubles game, I start yelling at my wife who's pregnant and who's on my team. God, I mean, make a dive. Come on, make a play here. So I think content, and there's a lot of subgenres of the content. It can be actual really competitive content where two professionals are playing at each other and watching the match. It can be shoulder programming about how they train for pickleball. It could be funny content if you go into the comedy aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think we go comedy. That's it. Like, it's remember, like, in the movie Dodgeball, when it's Jason Bateman as, like, the funny commentator? We need to just get a comedian that does the commentary. Sorry, but that, that's a great idea. No, I think the comedy genre of pickleball content is a listen low hanging fruit for sure. Definitely. And I also, but in all honesty, this is something that I really have explored is the pickleball academies, youth academies, because pickleball, it's cheap. It's all you need is a paddle and a few of the plastic balls. It's not expensive in terms of baseball where they get bats, cleats, all that stuff. It can also be set up anywhere in an urban area. So it's totally accessible and it's a natural segue into tennis if someone decided they did want to go into tennis. So I think youth academies are the right way to do it. And it's both from an individual perspective and a team perspective, team-based sport. It's it's a uh, great sport for youth. So I'm excited to see where the youth growth goes into it. My nephew just started playing. He's actually taking lessons and I I think it's going to be like, the hot new thing. Remember when we grew up and three-on-three basketball was really starting to become a thing and the and one league and all that stuff. That was our, I guess, 
unique fringe sport where I think pickleball is the unique fringe sport that people are going to really start taking seriously. It will be an Olympic sport in maybe not this next Olympics, but the Olympics after that. Wow. Yeah, that's a great call. You had three on three. You even had slam ball, which was amazing until I think too many people tore their Achilles doing it, but it was amazing to watch. Wow. That's interesting. But I mean, I think we laid out the roadmap on how you monetize it. I'm telling you, if a kid, if a guy can get 10 million for disc golf, pickleball endorsement deals are going to be going for 50 million. It's got to be. Without a doubt. Think about disc golf. So disc golf, it has a you know, pretty solid following. But disc golf, it takes up a lot of land. Get a disc golf course, you're going to have to deal with government, forestry, all that stuff. And with pickleball, it takes up very little space, not even half of a tennis court. So it's totally approachable in a very scalable sport. So I'm all in on it. That's a good call because like basketball is the easiest. All you need is a ball. Pickleball is the same thing. You could have all these public courts people play. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a reason why there's a reason why soccer is the most practiced sport in the world is because you all you need is a ball and anyone can go kick the ball around with their buddy or neighbor in the street or anywhere. It doesn't really matter. And same with basketball. Basketball is number two in the world in terms of participation is because you just need a hoop and a ball. That's it. Okay. I'm going to be really mad in five to 10 years when someone not us is rolling in the pickleball money. Can they change the name? Can we make it a little bit more like badass or do we like pickleball? I think pickleball, I think that's the whole shtick to it is that it's it got a unique name and it makes people look into it. Like, what is this pickleball? Like, what does that mean? And so people look into it and it just, I think it just grows the interest even more. Yeah. I might rebrand it. Maybe call it like smash ball or smash net. You know, make it real exciting. I'll head up to Pickleball USA Academy and see what they say. Well, that's what you do. Well, so that's what you can do. Pickleball's the game, but the Smash League could be (laughs) the league. Because then you get people just want to see the Smash. You take one thing and you just hype it up. Um, And you keep stats around who had the most Smashes in a season or something. Well, you look at at what, are you familiar with the uh, concept chicken and pickle? Tell me more. No. Okay. Well, chicken and pickle, Jim, is a (laughs) giant growing concept that is where you go eat fried chicken and you play pickleball oh god they are pop they're about to pop up all over america and there's a few in oklahoma and you can't get in it's jam-packed it is so there's old like i said there's all these sub-genres of the sport and calling it chicken and pickle and it's a total lifestyle element around the sport so chicken and pickle can make it work I'm pretty sure we can make a youth academy work. If there isn't a clear roadmap for who the first sponsor should be, I don't know what else it would be. If you don't go after KFC and Church's Chicken and just... No. Or, I mean, shoot, Chick-fil-A. I mean, oh my Lord, they have so yeah. much money. Church's yeah. Chicken, Jim. I mean, <laughs> come on. Chick-fil-A can roll out the dough way better than Church's uh, Chicken. I don't know, man. Look at their P&L. They're good times, man. Good times during the pandemic. We, I've talked more about pickleball with you in the past the 20 minutes I have my entire life, but pretty good. Okay, we'll finish with a, a few kind of speed round questions. We're taking one from a listener in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His name's Campbell. He wants to know, why are people from Oklahoma City so different? Well, Oklahoma now has a lot of neat and interesting things to do. We have an NBA team and a lot of commerce is now coming out of the state. But I think it maybe stems from years and years of people having to make their own fun and would do whatever it takes to make their own fun. So maybe that's why 
were also weird. There, there is something unique about people from Oklahoma. That's for uh, damn sure. I mean, when I used to go visit you at Kansas, your friends would call us the circus in Kansas. And they were not far off from circus-like behavior, that's for sure. Oh, man. Yeah. Glad to say we've really grown up, even though pre-pandemic at a uh, certain somebody's bachelor party in Colorado, it uh, yeah, the circus was, circus was out in full force. But anyway, no need to go down that rabbit hole here. So in eighth grade, you hit a shot in the championship game that some people call the biggest shot in Catholic League school history. How did that change your life? And is that why you spiraled out of control in high school? Well, Jim, when I hit that shot, I believe it was against Sacred Heart. And it was just one of those clutch threes. I got it right there in the corner and just bam, nothing but net. And at that point, I knew I had reached my uh, peak. And so that's when I decided in high school just to, there's not much else I need to do here. I've peaked and hit my three-point shot in the state championship. And I don't need to do anything else. So that could have been one of the uh, reasons why. But it still is actually it's funny. I was looking at hiring a guy the other day who went to St. Eugene. And for our listeners, St. Eugene was another school in the uh, Catholic League. And he, we got to talking. And instead of me interviewing him for the job role, all I talked about was my eighth grade state championship. And I even talked about my three-point shot. So it has stuck with me 25 years later. And I still continue to talk about it. I'm talking about it on a podcast right now, and I'm 37 years old. Yeah, if I didn't have any listeners, I definitely don't now. That we're literally like patting ourselves on the back for something we did in eighth grade. Not even high school, but eighth grade sports accolades. But anyway, maybe our wives will listen to this. Well, I could tell you, I could tell you right now, the only other sport I would have been better at in eighth grade than basketball would be pickleball. Seriously, though, like even seeing guy like people playing lacrosse, it's a little bit of a combination of eye-hand coordination and athletics. Yeah, man, I, I actually love tennis and I wish I would have played it growing up. But yeah, wasn't in the cards for me. Well, well, the problem was we never had a an approachable way to learn tennis. This is an pickleball is a complete approachable way to segue into tennis. No, it absolutely is. Because, yeah, we weren't, I wasn't at a country club where you do that. And even if you wanted to play, it was an event to go play tennis. You don't just go pick up a ball. So, yeah. so the last question I have for you, what is the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career? Oh, man. I've had so many nice people come across my professional career. Well, I would say, I would say, honestly, our mutual friend, John Paul, he was a investor in Powderheart and the first one, one of of the first ones. And for him to take a risk on in an industry that I know nothing about and had no experience was really a nice uh, gesture because there are plenty other options to invest in. That is definitely one of them. And then another one would be probably Clay Bennett, the owner of the Oklahoma City Thunder. I gave me a job right out of college, again, in an industry where I had no experience working for the Oklahoma City Thunder. So I'd say both of those are very, very nice gestures. It's so interesting. It's all about those people that crack the door open for you to go try something new when you probably don't know if you're even right for it, but them taking that risk. I, I think those are like those inflection points in a career that make all the difference in the world. But those are two good call outs. One call out on John Paul. How is that working 
like with friends in the sense that you take money from friends to do a venture because I'm sure deep down you're nervous because you just want to be able to deliver and make it a great ROI. Does that how does that change your mindset whenever you're raising money and involves family and friends? Yeah, family and friends definitely it can definitely make it awkward, but it also puts just a little bit, you know. I mean, maybe in future rounds, I'm not going to family and friends, but it also keeps it back of mind. And then when COVID hit, I became terrified. I was going to let down friends and family. So you do literally whatever it takes to make it work. And which I do think if you're the right type of person, taking family and friends as investors can be beneficial because you will literally do whatever it takes to make it work. Yeah, it's that extra kind of kick in the butt or motivation to make it happen. Well, cool. Well, Charlie, this is awesome, man. Where should we point people if they want to learn more about Powderheart or you or anything that you're doing? Yeah, you can just go to powderheart.com. That is our website. You can read more about the uh, concept there. We have our second location coming to Fort Worth. We are also about to launch a digital on-demand product called Powder House. H-A-U-F. That is going to be a pretty cool product. But yeah, Powderheart is off to the races. And if anyone wants one in their city, reach out to me and let me know if you see any good spots. Right now, I'm at that point where it's, okay, we have the model down and I'm ready to grow. And it's, okay, do we do it all just corporate-owned growth? Or do we look into licensing deals or even franchise opportunities? So looking at all different aspects of the business, but we're very optimistic on where it can go. It really is a special model. And I think anyone that's looking for a market that's about to just blow up post-pandemic where people want to be in a social situation and working out, it, yeah, I'm pretty bullish on the the next decade to come with it. So that's exciting, man. Yeah, thank you. I'm very bullish on health and wellness in general. There's definitely the only trajectory is up for health and wellness. And I'm uh, excited to see where it goes. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Charlie. Thanks for having me, Jim. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.